and welcome to the podcast for Christ Community Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. My name is Lee Younger. I'm one of the pastors here, and this is a message that I gave on Sunday morning, November 28th, 2021, from the Gospel of Luke in chapter 2. Good morning and welcome to Christmas season, finally. Even the people that don't let you listen to Christmas music until after Thanksgiving have now relented. Everybody's on board. It's Christmas season. Welcome to Advent, where we spend a few weeks thinking about how our Lord came for us. And during this Advent season, we're going to take a few weeks to talk about Christmas ornaments. And I don't mean like the Christmas ornaments that you hang on the tree or the mantle, not the little baubles and lights and tinsel and all that kind of stuff. I mean like the like the original meaning of the word ornament. An ornament is like an accessory. It's like a piece of equipment that goes with something else, either for use or for adornment. I want to look at the Christmas story and for a few weeks thinking, think about just the, uh, the trappings and the trinkets of that first Christmas, that most amazing of nights. I'm going to start reading in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Today, by the way, our Christmas ornament is the swaddling clothes. I'll talk about why. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that the census should be, a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no place available for them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning, for just the gift of being able to sing with the family of God, to remember you again and to turn our attention to you on purpose at the beginning of this week. I'm praying as we look at this scripture and we think about the fact that you were wrapped up in cloth. That's, it was like the first thing that happened on the very first Christmas, that you would help us to understand what that tells us about who you are and why you came. Open our hearts so that we could receive your word. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so um, the swaddling clothes. It's really interesting that when it says that she wrapped him, she swaddled him up in cloths or wrapped him in cloths, it's actually that, that whole thing, the wrapping and the cloth is all one word in the original language. She was, he was cloth swaddled. Like that's kind of what it says. And then later it talks about it there and it's an important deal because it becomes an identifying mark. Later when the angels burst out of the night sky to tell the shepherds that this thing had happened and that the savior of the world was born, they said, if you go into the city of David, you'll find him laying in a manger and all cloth swaddled. And so it's, we have it twice right here in this chapter, this, this little thing, this swaddling clothes. And when I was thinking about it this week, I was just thinking about the fact that God, almighty God, became a human being and dwelt on the earth. And when he did it, he was all wrapped up in some random cloth that Mary and Joseph either brought with them or found there that night. And they wrapped him up and that was his first clothing. Almighty God just wrapped up in a random piece of cloth. 
It made me think about this place in 1 Kings chapter 8 where Solomon, the son of David, who's the king over Israel, has just built this magnificent temple to God. It took him a long time to do it. It was really expensive. It was really super fancy. And they had all these sacrifices and everything because the idea was that the the presence of God was going to dwell on the earth in this temple. And as Solomon prayed, he said, will God really dwell on the earth? He said, the heavens, even the highest heavens cannot contain you much less this temple that I've built. That was in 1 Kings chapter 8. And yet, on this night, the night of the first Christmas, the God who's so big that all of the heavens, the highest heavens can't contain him, much less this temple I've built, became so small that he fits snugly in the arms of a middle school-aged girl. I was thinking about Psalm 104, which says, you are clothed in splendor and majesty. Like if God is gonna have clothes, almighty God, his clothes would be splendor and majesty. I have no idea what that looks like, but it sounds pretty amazing. And then the Psalm goes on to say, he wraps himself with light as with a garment. His clothes are splendor and majesty. If he was to put a cloak over that, it would be light itself. The highest heavens can't contain him. He wraps himself in light. He's clothed with splendor and majesty. And yet on this night, the night of nights, the first Christmas, he's small enough to fit in the arms of a teenage girl and he's wrapped up in whatever cloth they could find lying around. Okay, will God really dwell on the earth? And on this night, he did. God, almighty God as a human baby dwelling on the earth in this teenage girl's arms. How could this happen? We're gonna back up a little bit and kind of go nine months earlier when God sent a messenger to this very, very young girl who was pledged to be married to this guy, but they had not gotten together at all yet. The, you know, the, the marriage had not happened, they're just engaged. And God sends this messenger, this angel, to this girl, Mary, and says, hey, and she's like, whoa, she freaks out. And he says, do not be afraid. I have great news for you, oh, highly favored one. And she's like, looking at, she's like, who, me? I mean, this girl was like a nobody from nowheresville. Nobody knows who she is. She wasn't special to anybody except, I guess, her own family and Joseph, obviously, and God himself. And he says, you are going to have a baby. And I'm thinking, she's probably like, time out. I'm super not because I have never had sex, you see? And he's like, no, 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 this is going to be a special situation. This is going to be a miracle, baby. God himself, the spirit of God is going to make this happen. And the baby that you're gonna have will be called very great. He will be God himself, the son of God. He will sit on the throne of his father, David, and his dominion will have no end. And in the most pregnant pause, in the history of pregnant pauses, the angel's waiting, and Mary says, okay, I'll do it. And without her being able to see it, because she couldn't see what was happening in heaven, I'm imagining that the invisible reality, the invisible to us, reality of heaven itself, they went nuts. They're like, yes, it's on. Okay, the rescue mission for all humanity is on. She said, yes, it's going to happen. Now the problem is, I don't know who she told or how she told it, but nobody, nobody believed that an angel had shown up and that she had not yet had sex and she was having a miracle baby who was God himself who was gonna sit on the throne of his father David. Nobody bought this. Surprise, surprise. 
And so all of a sudden, she's not only carrying the baby Jesus, but she's carrying guilt and shame for something she didn't even do. Misplaced guilt and shame, she's carrying it around with the baby Jesus himself. And I don't know how her little fiance found out about it. I don't know who told Joseph. I don't know if her parents, you know, if her mom told her sister and her sister told somebody who at the market, um, Joseph's mom overheard it, told Joseph's dad. And, and then he found out, or if it was one of her friends she thought she could trust and she told her friend and then at a sleepover she told one of her friends and then suddenly at the middle school cafeteria, everybody knows. And so Joseph finds out. I don't know how it went down, but I'm sure he was brokenhearted. And he's like, how could this possibly have happened? I didn't think Mary was like that. And of course, he's not believing the angel thing either, either in the, you know, seated on the throne of his father, David. Sure, whatever. Nobody believed it. And Joseph really liked this girl. And so he didn't want to bring down the whole fury of the law and everything that they could have done to her. And so he decides, I'm just going to like end this quietly. So she's not going to get any more disgrace and shame for everything that she's already done and she's already carrying around. Of course, that whole thing was misplaced because she hadn't done anything. And then God sends another messenger into Joseph's dreams while he's asleep. And he's like, hey, Joe, um, she didn't do it. She's not who she thinks she is. This is a miracle, baby. It's actually the Messiah, the savior of the world that everybody's been waiting on. You're going to marry her. And Joseph's like, okay. And he's like, not only that, when the baby's born, you're going to give him the name Jesus. Yeshua, which means the salvation of God, because he is going to save his people from their sins. And so Joseph wakes up and he's like, oh, gosh. And you know that was a Monday. And so he calls Mary up and he's like, okay, um, I know it's true. And she's like, somebody believes me. And he's like, yeah, okay, so here's the deal. I'm going to stick with you and we're going to see this thing through and we're going to name the baby Jesus. And she's like, I've been calling him Emmanuel, but whatever. And so um, based on the prophecy and so whatever, whatever you say. So I'm just glad you're sticking with me on this. And so there, because of this now, not only Mary, but also Joseph is going to be carrying around the guilt and the shame for something he did not do. Because now everybody thinks that not only Mary was having sex, but it was with Joseph, by the way, because he's decided to go ahead and do this thing the right way and own up and stick with her and everything. So now everybody thinks this thing that's not true of them, and they're carrying around the guilt and shame for something they did not do. And then this decree comes down from the government. Everybody's got to go back to your ancestral home so that we can make sure we get the taxation right. So Mary and Joseph were both descended from the line of King David, who was from Bethlehem. So they both have to travel to Bethlehem. By the way, that means that their entire uh, extended family were also there in Bethlehem. Joseph's entire family, all the aunts and uncles, Mary's entire family, all the aunts and uncles, all the cousins, the grannies, whoever was there. And you make this couple have a baby in a barn? Come on now. Because they were carrying around this misplaced guilt and shame for something they did not do. Guilt is when you, you know, when you feel bad because you did a wrong thing. Shame is when you feel bad because you just are bad. And everybody had rejected him and they didn't get, I mean, come on, you got a pregnant teenage girl, a middle school age girl who's about to have a baby and you don't give her the best seat in the house? But she was down in like the open air garage where the transportation was parked, which was, you know, donkeys and stuff. And she's down there 
and she has this baby. And one of the very first thing that happens is they find some piece of cloth and they wrap him up. First his feet. And by the way, I know this because, you know, Christy and I had, we had three kids and when she was pregnant with our oldest, she brought home this book one day called The Happiest Baby on the Block. And some of you have read this, but The Happiest Baby on the Block is just this doctor who came up with this, this plan of all these tactics to use when your baby is super upset. And you know, you fed them, you changed them and everything, and they're still just upset and you're trying to get them to calm down. And he came up with these five techniques that you can do and all the words start with the letter S, the five S's. And the idea is that you're mimicking the environment that they just left before they were born. Because now they're out in the world and it's just cold and my limbs are just flying all over the place. And a few minutes ago, I was all just huddled up and it was warm and cozy and it was just, you know, it was just really nice. And so he was like, let's mimic this environment. They'll go right to sleep. So um, Christy's Nana made us these blankets and we, you know, basically you take this blanket and you turn it into like a triangle or like a Superman symbol. You lay the baby down on it and the baby's losing their minds. And the first thing you do is you wrap up their little feet. And before you wrap up the feet, you look at the feet because the feet are so cute. <laughs> and they have these impossibly tiny toenails. And you just can't stop obsessing over these amazing little toenails. Look at those toenails. You know, and so then you, okay, you get over it, you wrap up the feet because the baby's screaming. And then you take another piece of cloth, you wrap it all the way over both arms around their back and you make it as tight as you can. Take the last one, wrap it all the way around, all the way around and tuck it in. We used to call Anna the baby burrito. And we would get her and then you do the sway and then you do side and then you do shh and all the little techniques and then she would go right to sleep. Anna, in particular, loved the swaddle so much. I remember at one point, she was eight months old and my mom came to visit and we were putting her down to go to sleep and my mom was like, you're still wrapping that baby up like a Cuban cigar? <laughs> She's eight months old. And we were like, yeah, she likes it. And my mom was like, you're gonna, be, you're gonna go to her college dorm room and you're gonna have to swaddle this child. <laughs> or she's not gonna go to sleep. She eventually, you know, but we did as long as we could. But that was the first thing that happened was that, you know, Joseph found some piece of cloth and this couple that had been rejected from this misplaced guilt and shame over a thing that they did not do, they're on their own in the dirt and our Lord was born and they put this cloth out like a triangle and the very first thing Mary did was she wrapped up his precious little feet and she looked at his impossibly tiny toenails and she's like, look at those toenails. And then she wrapped up his feet. She like gift wrapped his feet like a little present. And I have to say, when I think about that moment, it gives me pause because the feet of Jesus were a gift. The feet of Jesus were a gift to this world and a gift to me. I've been thinking all week about the feet of Jesus, about how a guy with leprosy one time just like ran and fell at the feet of Jesus and begged him, would you do something at his feet? to help me. I was thinking about how a Canaanite woman not only fell at the feet of Jesus, but just like as he was trying to walk away, she's just like scooching on the ground behind his feet, begging not for herself, but for her little girl. Would you please help me? My little girl has this evil spirit. Would you take care of it, please? Thinking about evil spirits themselves who would take over folks and then, and they would collapse at the feet of Jesus and they would beg him, don't torture us. I was thinking about I was thinking about a woman who gate crashed a dinner party she was not invited to. And she was so overwhelmed with gratitude for Jesus that she fell down at his feet, kissing his feet and weeping on his feet and taking her hair down and wiping her tears off of those precious feet. I was thinking about Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha, 
the week before Jesus went to the cross and how she scuttled through the house and found the most valuable thing she owned and cracked that thing open and poured it out all over the feet of Jesus. I was thinking about how the feet of Jesus, they went where no one else could. When his disciples were in the middle of a storm, in the middle of the night, and they were freaking out, thought they were about to die, the feet of Jesus just walking on the waves, walking on a storm. He went where no one else could. His, the feet of Jesus carried him where no one else would. One time in John chapter 4, it said, he had to go through Samaria. This was a part of the country where nobody, none of his people liked to go because they hated the people who lived there because of their racism. They would not go see this ethnic group. They would not talk to them because of their racism. But it said Jesus had to go through Samaria because he had an appointment with a woman at a well. And he was going to not only tell her who he was, but he was going to use her to go back into her village and reach the rest of them. Because he not only loved her and people like her, he loved the rest of her whole village. The feet of Jesus went where no one else could. They went where no one else would. They went where we have never understood. Jesus carrying our cross down the streets of Jerusalem. Going to Gethsemane, going to, uh, going to Golgotha, being laid out on this cross, and then a spike being driven through those precious feet that were a gift to the world and a gift to me, taking my place, carrying guilt and shame, by the way, that he did not deserve for things he did not do, the feet of Jesus. And when Jesus was risen from the dead, I was thinking about Mary Magdalene falling down and clinging to the feet of Jesus. And he said, you got to let go of me, girl. I have not yet ascended to the Father. And then Zechariah chapter 14 saying, when he comes back, it will be his feet that descend on the Mount of Olives. The feet of Jesus. What a gift to the world. What a gift to me. But the feet of Jesus weren't just a gift. The feet of Jesus were a promise. The very first promise, actually. The feet of Jesus were involved in the very first promise that was ever given about, the very, about Christmas. One of my favorite things about Christmas is it's not just that this beautiful story happened the way it did. It did. It is a beautiful story and it happened the way that it did. But it's not just that it happened. It was that also God foretold its happening. For thousands of years before it happened, God promised this would happen. He promised his people and all, he promised people tons of times dropping hints and clues all through the Old Testament to his people about all the things that we would need to know about the one who would come so that when he came, we wouldn't miss him. So you know when you were in seventh grade and you were in English class and they teach you all the interview words, the interview questions, who, what, when, where, why, and how, all those words, that's what the Old Testament prophecies of Jesus dealt with all of those. God made promises about who he would be. He would be a descendant of Abraham and a descendant of Jacob, a descendant of Judah, a descendant of David. That's who he would be. He made promises about what this Savior would be like, that he would be in Deuteronomy chapter 18. God said he's going to be a prophet. A prophet is somebody who tells you things about the heart of God that no one else could tell you, and you wouldn't know if, he didn't, if, they did, if this person didn't tell you, and Jesus was that. He was a prophet. 
Psalm 110 said, you will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He would be like a priest. A priest is someone who stands between me and God and does something for me to bring me to God that I could never do on my own. And oh, wasn't Jesus a priest, guys? He would be a prophet. He would be a priest. Psalm 2 says he would be the anointed king of all the world. And everybody's fighting over their little country. Everybody's talking about which nation is the greatest. And there's so much national pride and so much nationalist fervor and everything like that. And God promised there is one coming who is going to inherit all of it and dash all of the nations like pottery and rule every bit of it. Amen. He would be a prophet. He would be a priest. He would be a king. Who, what, where? The book of Micah in chapter five said he would be born in Bethlehem. We find out in Isaiah, he would be a Nazarene. From Hosea, that he would be called out of Egypt. He was born in Bethlehem. He had to run for his life to Egypt. He was raised in Galilee. Who, what, when, where? The book of Daniel tells us that, like, there's this amazing prophecy in the book of Daniel, by the way, of, like, laying out all the weeks from one point until the point where Jesus would walk into the temple in Jerusalem. It's amazing. Who, what, when, where, how? The book of Isaiah. Uh, Lauren just read it. Or No, you didn't read it. You read the one, two chapters later. The book of Isaiah in chapter 7 says he will be born of a virgin. Who, what, when, where, how, and why? Why? Why would this Savior come? Why would this prophet, this priest, this king show up? In order to answer that one, we have to go all the way back to the very first promise that was ever made about Christmas, the very first prophecy, the very first glimpse that was ever made about Christmas. It was not given to Father Abraham or King David or Moses or Elijah. It's weird, but the very first prophecy that was ever given about Christmas was given to the devil. You ever thought about this? The very first promise about Christmas was given to Satan. The word Satan, by the way, means the accuser. And just so we're on the same page, this dude does exist. There is a person, a personality, who has all these cronies that are on his side, and what they hate Jesus. They don't care very much about you, but they don't want you to like him, and they don't want you to trust him. And so what they do, Jesus calls the devil Satan. He calls him a liar who's the father of lies, who when he, when he lies, he speaks his native tongue. And that's what he does. And even though it sounds like really, really bad news that there is this person in the world, which it is bad news, there's actually some good news about it. And so I want to talk for just a second about a little piece of good news about the devil, which is, I know that sounds weird, but I'm going to need your help, okay? Because I'm going to ask you a question, and if you've ever experienced this, I need you to come with me on it. Just say yes or amen or whatever. Let's find out if we're on the same page. All right. Have you ever been having just a, a perfectly normal day, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you feel terrible about yourself? Just out of nowhere. You just thought some thought, and you're like, where did that come from? Why do all of a sudden I hate me? I don't understand this. Here's another one. Have you ever been having a completely normal like, conversation or whatever, and all of a sudden, the meanest thing you've ever thought just popped into your head? You weren't thinking about that person. You had no beef against that person. But all of, a sudden, all of a sudden, you just thought something of like, oh, wow, that's really mean. That's really gross. Have you ever been just doing your thing? 
And all of a sudden, everything's fine. You weren't tempted or anything. And then all of a sudden, you found yourself face down and a total failure from a temptation that you didn't even, like, it, you weren't even aware of it. Anybody been there? Here's a little piece of good news. Sometimes you fall and fail. Sometimes you give in to temptation. Sometimes you have a really terrible day in your thoughts and your feelings and your and all in your responses. Here's some good news. It's not always all you guys. Come on now, that's good news. It's not always all you. There is a personality who wants you to be discouraged today, who wants you to be afraid today, who wants you to be insecure today, who wants you to be anxious, who wants you to just not to trust God, to, to think everything's terrible. Guys, there is somebody who whispers lies all the time. And he started a long time ago with the oldest and the meanest lie. And he said it to the two very first people. He looked at Eve and he said, does God really love you? If he does, why does he hold out on you? That is the oldest and the meanest lie that there could ever be. You know what? I think you should feel worse about yourself than you do today. I don't think God really loves you. I don't know why he would. I don't really think you're enough. I don't really think you're up to today. I don't really think you should do what God says. I think you should do this totally other thing over here. Does God really love you? There is an old voice that has an old lie, and it's the meanest lie. The lie that says that God doesn't love you, and why would he? Why, would he, why wouldn't he hold back on you? And that lie was uttered a long, long time ago. And you know what happened. I mean, Eve grabbed a piece of fruit she shouldn't have done, she shouldn't have grabbed and she ate it. But I'll tell you what, the sin that really broke the world was the fact that her husband was standing there the whole time and never said a thing. The spiritual timidity of a human man who was supposed to step up and smash that serpent in the head. Don't talk to my wife like that. That's how Genesis chapter three should have gone. Shut up. Let's not eat that yet. That's how that should have gone, but then the whole world broke from that oldest and meanest of lies. God doesn't love you. Why would he? You're not enough. Why don't you do this over here? Why don't you say this thing right here? Why don't you respond in this way? And every single one of us have fallen and failing off of that thing, right? But it came from there. And when that oldest and meanest of lies happens, and if you wanna kick up the fury in the heart of God, that's the one. The idea that God doesn't love the people that he made. And he showed up and he looked that serpent in the face. And he said in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, I am going to put enmity between this woman and between you, between her offspring and yours. And you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. Merry Christmas. <laughs> that was it. That was the very first one. Not to Father Abraham, not King David or Moses or Elijah, but to that dude. The dude who utters lies, the one who wants to take you off your square, the one who wants you to be afraid, the one who wants you to be insecure. And so the very first promise of the very first Christmas included the feet of Jesus. You will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. So there had to be feet. And so he came. And just like Mary and Joseph carried guilt and shame that was not theirs for something they did not do, this little baby grew up and he had those beautiful little feet. 
And those feet went where no one else could. And they went where no one else would. And they went where no one could possibly have understood. And a spike went through those feet, through the heel. The heel was struck and he paid and he took our place and he carried guilt and shame for something he did not do. And he paid for all of your failures and all of my failures so that we never have to feel afraid or like a failure ever again. Amen. We get to feel clean and we get to feel fresh. And every single time that you feel like ashamed over, I just feel terrible about me today and I don't feel like I'm enough and I don't feel like I ever could be and I feel mad at this person. I feel like I want to respond in this way. You can just take that moment and start it over. You can just start it over. You don't have to hang your head in shame and you don't have to shuffle your feet in shame because other feet went before yours and you get to strut now. You get to hold your head up high. You get to dance. You get to moonwalk with your feet through your week with no guilt and no shame because somebody has taken our place. Amen? Amen. Somebody has taken our place and taken all our guilt and all our shame. There's this beautiful place, um, which by the way, so that happened at the very beginning of the Bible, like chapter three, the very beginning. At the very end of the Bible, Almost the very, very end, the Apostle John was writing this little letter. First John, in chapter 3, he said, The Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Isn't that awesome? Very beginning of the Bible, there's somebody coming. You're going to strike his heel, but he's going to crush your head. Very end of the Bible, the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil, to take our place, to pay for all of our failures, so we never have to be afraid. And we never have to hang our head in shame. And whatever you've done and whatever you do, you can just start over right now. You can just hold your head up high and start over fresh and clean. There's this beautiful verse in, uh, in the book of Romans in chapter 16 where the Apostle Paul says, um, he says, God will soon crush Satan. And I'm like, that's a great start to a verse, brother. Keep on going. I love it so far. Fantastic writing. He says, God will soon crush Satan under your feet. And I'm like, oh, that just got better somehow. And I always have loved this verse because every now and then when I have a really bad day or I can just feel the sulfur of the one who is the biggest jerk of all time. I'll just kind of whisper to myself, hey, size 12s are coming, baby. It's right there in the book. So you might want to back it down a little bit. But what I was thinking about that verse this week, and I've always loved it so much. And I thought about, I don't know how it's going to go down. I don't know if he has just a, like a really big head and so there's room for everybody. I don't really know. Or if there's like a line of people. But it did occur to me that if there is a line of people who get to fulfill that little verse... Eve gets to go first because the first promise of the first Christmas <laughs> was in response to what happened to her because the oldest and the meanest lie, does God really love you? Why would he hold out on you? God wants her to know, yes, girl, I do. I do so much that I'm coming there with feet. I'm going to take it all and then you are going to be fresh and clean. Isn't that beautiful? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. That the first thing that happened on the first Christmas was that your beautiful feet were gift wrapped because your feet were a gift to the world and a gift to me. Thank you for taking our place. Thank you for taking the guilt and the shame that you did not deserve for what you did not do to take it off of us so that we can hold our head high all week. And I pray for anybody in this room right now that is weighed down at all by anything that's happened this week any moment where they felt like they weren't enough. 
any moment where they're beating themselves up again for some little failure or some little moment or some little thought or some little response. I thank you, first of all, that our bad moments aren't all us. That's a relief. And second of all, that you have taken our place. And now we can hold our head up high and we can strut and we can dance and we can moonwalk because of your beautiful feet. We love you and thank you. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Once in royal David City stood alone. Shall see him through his own.